I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we're discussing the most controversial and hotly contested constitutional issue of the new year, and that is Je suis Charlie. This week, in light of the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, uh, we're taking a critical look at the freedom of speech in America and across Europe. Last Wednesday, masked gunmen left 12 dead in a strike on the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. The victims included several staff members, including the paper's top editor. The attackers appear to have been motivated by revenge. In wake of the shootings, people around the world have expressed their support for Charlie Hebdo and the French people using the hashtag Je suis Charlie. On Sunday, more than a million marchers took to the streets of Paris in what's been called the largest demonstration in modern French history. A report in the New York Times this week highlights a newly energized debate about the limits of free speech. If speech is perceived to be insulting or indecent, is it okay for newspapers to decline to publish it or for governments to regulate it? Joining me to discuss these extraordinary events are the two world-leading experts on the subject of hate speech and good friends of the National Constitution Center. Eric Posner is the Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Uh, his current research interests include international and constitutional law, and he appeared in a superb panel co-hosted by FIRE about free speech in Europe and America at the Constitution Center recently. One of his co-panelists was Jonathan Rauch, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic, and author of six books, including the definitive book on uh, free speech in America, uh, Kindly Inquisitors. Uh, I want to jump right into it. Jonathan, in Kindly Inquisitors, you argued that the West's watery and weak response to the fatwa against Salman Rushdie in 1989 inspired you to write the book. And we learned from the New York Times that some American newspapers, including the Times itself, have declined to publish the most recent Charlie Hebdo cartoons, including uh, the one uh, that appears uh, most recently showing the prophet Muhammad weeping, uh, saying all is forgiven. Was the New York Times and the other media outlets in America that have refused to publish the latest cartoons, including CNN, the AP, and the NBC, uh, were they correct to refuse to publish? Uh, or do you side with Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Business Insider, the Huffington Post, uh, uh, which decided to publish the cartoons? I wish the Times had published that cover because I think its news value was extraordinary. And because I think it sends a message that this kind of terrorism doesn't work. Um, and I think we're seeing an emergence, even within the Times, of, of that view. The New York Times public editor today came out and said that, that she thought the Times should have published that. Uh, so I wish they had. Eric, should the Times have published? Um, I have more mixed feelings. Um, on the one hand, uh, this, the images did have uh, real news value. 
And uh, the fact that they were offensive, I think, was outweighed by the news value. On the other hand, I'm reluctant to second-guess the New York Times, which has reporters in the Middle East and all over the world who could become victims of um, Islamists uh, who want to take revenge uh, against the New York Times. And then just as a practical matter, uh, anybody can see these images on the web just by doing a search. So I think the the loss in this case in terms of uh, information uh, is relatively minimal. Let's turn to Europe. Um, uh, in France, Le Monde decided to publish the latest Charlie Hebdo cartoons on the grounds that it's an important document that we wanted to show everyone. By contrast, uh, the Danish newspaper, Ilan's Posten, which had originally run the 2005 cartoons Lampooning Muhammad, which drew violent recriminations, has decided not to publish. And Fleming Rose, the former cultural editor of that newspaper, told the New York Times that they decided not to publish basically for fear the newspaper would be targeted again. Jonathan, is fear of retaliation legitimate grounds not to publish? Oh, absolutely. Um, these decisions aren't easy, and Gillen's Poston is in a particularly exposed situation because it's already been the target of violence. Um, the cartoonist of the uh, Kurt who drew the original Muhammad cartoon, is still under government protection. Um, so I completely understand the decision there in particular not to stick their neck out again. That said... In a situation like this, there is a positive social externality when lots of people sort of join hands, as they did in the street of Paris, and say, okay, you're going to target some of us, you're going to have to target all of us, and that's going to be a lot harder. So to the extent that lots of people do independently make the judgment to take the very real risk of being a target, I think they actually diminish the risk of any particular place being targeted. And that's why I like to see lots of people do it. Eric, what do you think of Jonathan's point? Uh, he had argued at the time of the Muhammad cartoons that if more Western newspapers had published them, then their uh, the ability to provoke uh, violence in practice and in theory would have been lessened. Should, should, should the European newspapers overcome their fears and, and publish nevertheless? You know, I think he's, he, he makes a very good point. And um, just about the, the sort of uh, mechanics of terrorist attacks, it, it's sort of like a if everybody herds together, it's harder to it's harder to divide them, you know. Um, but uh, I think that's an argument that's a stronger argument for American uh, outlets, at least ones without an international presence. The problem in Europe is is a deeper one, which is that the more that the media um, republish these cartoons, the greater the danger that they continue to alienate the large, um, already alienated Muslim populations in those countries. So, you know, there is a, a positive in one sense. Uh, it, it helps vindicate the, the value of freedom of expression, but, but it also um, could enhance social cleavages, uh, resulting in more violence. And, uh, and that can lead to a crackdown uh, both on civil liberties and, and really freedom of speech, because the government ultimately will have the responsibility of maintaining social order. Uh, Jonathan, Eric notes uh, that there might be a difference between Europe and America when it comes to these editorial decisions. I want to turn now from editorial decisions to law. Europe uh, allows far greater regulation of hate speech and group libel than America does. And some 
European spokespeople have accused the French government of hypocrisy in defending the freedom of Charlie Hebdo to publish while clamping down on cartoonists who insulted Jews, including Giordane Mabala Mabala, who, uh, whose shows were banned. And indeed, uh, Mr. Mabala Mabala on his Facebook page has expressed admiration for the suspected gunman between the killings at a kosher supermarket. Um, are the French authorities being consistent in prosecuting hate speech against Jews and defending it against Muslims? Well, I don't know enough about their specific enforcement policies and the situations to give to answer precisely the question you asked. So in time-honored fashion, I'll, ask, I'll answer a different question, slightly different, <laughs> which is, is it really even possible to enforce hate speech laws apolitically or consistently? And I think generally the answer to that is no. Generally, you're going to have political authorities making very subjective and often capricious judgments about what goes and what doesn't. And that's one of a whole number of reasons why I think those laws are generally a, a bad idea. You, you don't know in advance what the rules are going to turn out to be, what it's safe to publish and, and what isn't safe to publish. So you get hypocrisy, you get chilling effects. What I don't think you get with hate speech laws is actually any demonstrated increase in uh, safety or social peace. Eric Jonathan throws down the gauntlet and says that it's impossible to enforce hate speech laws in a neutral outlet. And if you're going to ban blasphemy uh, and group libel against uh, Jews, it's difficult to distinguish it against another religious group. Is he right? And more broadly, does the controversy over the latest Charlie Hebdo cartoons call into question the entire European approach to regulating hate speech? No, no, I think it strengthens the, the European approach. Uh, I do think it's difficult, but I, I wouldn't use the word hypocrisy. It, it's, it's much more complicated than that. So, so first, just in terms of evidence, we know that the president of France told uh, Charlie Hebdo earlier on, please, please stop publishing these cartoons. Um, the magazine uh, refused. It seems to me pretty clear that if they hadn't, then this attack never would have happened. Now, that doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been terrorist attacks in France. Um, one of the reasons for the attacks was French involvement in the Middle East, and, and that would have continued. But um, it seems relatively clear that uh, the terrorist attack that might have occurred based just on um, the Middle East would not, would not have been as traumatic because it wouldn't have uh, gone to the heart of you know, French liberal democratic institutions. Now, now to, to get back more precisely to your question, it's it's clear you know, if you have hate speech laws, there's no. There, there, I mean, Jonathan is right. There's no neutral way to um, to apply them. It's it's always going to be a political judgment, and basically, what the judgment is, are that certain groups will be deeply offended by certain types of speech, to the extent that they may cause violence or or be deeply unhappy. And uh, in those circumstances, it may be justified to censor the speech, at least when it has very little, you know, truth, value, or, or, or political content. And um, I think that's a defensible system to have in a country where people, where, where offense taking uh, can lead to violence. Um, I don't think that's the case in the United States, but I think it's a mistake to think that what we have in the United States works um, in other countries. In the United States, the current system of free speech 
was a relatively recent one, one that, that basically works because right now we're not really under threat and people aren't uh, terrified of, uh, of various groups. But in the past, um, there have been restrictions against the speech of anarchists sometimes or during the Civil War, uh, sympathizers with the South. And so all uh, during the Cold War, uh, uh, communists. So when, when a country sees a, a serious threat, um, that's, when they, that's when they try to restrict, restrict uh, speech. And while sometimes the restrictions are mistaken, I, I don't think you can rule them out. Um, and, and I think that in France, it, it does make a lot of sense to restrict uh, speech. Now, now uh, one last thing. Uh, in France, they, they do have these laws. They have blasphemy laws. They have all kinds of laws that are enforced. Um, and um, to gen not, you know, they're, they're forced in various ways. Often they protect Catholics. And in other circumstances, the government has tried to use them to protect Muslims from offense and Jews as well. So there may be some inconsistency or uh, lack of wisdom in how exactly those laws are enforced. But, you know, that's a legitimate complaint. And, and I think the government should take that into account and, and try to enforce the laws in a way uh, that, that is more even handed. Uh, Jonathan, Eric says uh, that uh, even-handed enforcement is fine, but that it's appropriate for Europe and America to have different approaches because of their different history and the American approach, which really only allows the banning of speech when it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, is not appropriate for Europe, where a more uh, broad regulation of hate speech that's likely to offend large groups may be permissible and also protect public safety. Do you agree? Um, I don't agree. Um, it's certainly true, as you say, that America's approach to hate speech is really off the grid internationally. I think where, Eric will correct me, but I think we're now the only country that has something like the First Amendment, which basically rules out government censorship of hate speech. I think Hungary used to be in our category, but changed its policy. So, so we're really kind of a lone ranger on this policy. But isn't it also interesting that we have very few incidents of terrorism that targets Speech. I suspect there are a number of reasons for that, of course. We're socially different from some other places. But I suspect the First Amendment is one reason for that, which is that people who want to change our policies um, on the First Amendment understand that there's absolutely nothing that government can do. Um, blowing up places is not going to change the Constitution. It may intimidate us a bit, but I think the robust culture of free speech helps us there too. I'd also point out um, that we seem to have fewer of the kinds of problems of um, lack of social harmony that we see in Europe. And I'd argue getting to the philosophical level that robust protection for speech and debate is actually one of the reasons. It's very hard to identify your problems with hate if you don't allow hate speech. You've got to know where it is. You've got to be able to rebut it. You've got to have a robust culture. And I think a culture where you try to chill it and drive it underground I think it perversely helps the extremists on both sides and makes it harder for moderates to have the kind of um, kind of discussion and debate that that's where social peace actually comes from. Eric, what is the French definition of hate speech, and what should it be? Uh, there are different definitions have been applied. Google and Facebook, when they decided to allow the um, 
Innocence of the Muslims video concluded that it was okay because the policies prohibit insulting a religion, but not the insulting of a religious prophet. On the other hand, the French definition seems to be more abstract and doesn't allow speech that stigmatizes and demeans. First of all, what, what does French law prohibit and, and, and should the definition be more precise? Well, you know, it's complicated. There, there was on the books that, you know, like blasphemy, literally blasphemy laws, you know, going back centuries, they're still on the books. Courts have interpreted them uh, in, you know, in various ways. The interpretations have, have changed over time, just, just the way they have in the United States. There are cases, uh, for example, where there have been advertisements, let's say for movies, that um, seem to be, you know, are quite offensive for Catholics. And courts have sometimes required uh, people to um, people to take down those ads. Um, uh, generally speaking, um, in in Europe and and France hate speech has has to really be directed towards someone somebody or some group it, it can't be uh, too abstract but as, as jonathan points out um it, it can fall short of, of what's required um, in the united states uh, for criminalization which would be you know incitement to a riot or something or something like that so i mean they're still working it out um in, in their in their court system and i'm sure they, they'll continue um they're, they're they the the french understand uh, that speech has a lot of value, um, but but they're willing more than uh, in the United States to apply a balancing test, where you where you look at the the contribution of the speech to public discussion and and compare and and balance it against you know how how offensive it is, and the problem with these cartoons, a lot of the cartoons that were published in this magazine, not not all of them obviously, is that you know they just seem to be provocative without really making any point at all and uh and i think and i think that one of the key things that we in the united states have trouble understanding um at least non-muslims in the united states is that you know people in different culture can be deeply offended by something that that we find you know harmless or, or amusing and it's easy to turn it around there are things that we find incredibly uh offensive that people in the other culture and other cultures find totally um, bizarre. Like, you know, a number of years ago, there was there were attempts to ban uh, desecration of the American flag. That was struck down on First Amendment grounds, but at least in the United States, a lot of people are horrified by flag desecration. And, and I think one of the problems here is that um, it's hard to look across these cultural barriers to understand that some things, you know, it's it's so easy just to say to another group, get used to it, don't worry about it. But that's just because we don't really understand what's going on in that in that other group, and and, and that's really why I think that uh, Europeans are trying to approach this problem in a sensible and pragmatic uh, way, and that uh, and that in the United States we make the mistake in thinking that our own system, which is itself the result of a lot of pragmatic application, uh, pra pragmatic compromises over the decades, reflects some kind of universal code that's um, absolutely appropriate to everyone else. What we should say is, what, we're an outlier. You know, we're we're alone in the world. Other countries have experimented with our system and rejected it. So while it may be good for us, we should be quite hesitant about claiming that it's the right system for everybody else. Jonathan, Eric argues that 
uh, the French properly balance the social value of speech against uh, the potential social harms, and he says that these cartoons really had no point. Uh, defenders of the cartoons have said that they did indeed have a, a strong point, that the Charlie Hebdo, far from just signaling out Muslims for ridicule, was passionately defending secularism against uh, increasing fundamentalism and denounced, was an equal opportunity denouncer of, of all religions. Do you think the definition of hate speech that Eric has proposed is adequate? Is it precise enough? And, and do you agree with his characteristic, his characterization of the of the social value of the of the cartoons? Well, I think if I'm understanding Eric correctly, um, the definition of hate speech is going to depend on a sort of offendedness sweepstakes. We're going to look and see how many people are offended, how much, and then we're going to regulate accordingly. And there are a couple problems with that. One is pragmatic. As, as George Orwell said, uh, it's all well and good to say you have to break eggs to make an omelet, but where's the omelet? Where is this greater social harmony and cohesion and living together that these hate crimes laws are supposed to be creating in Europe? I, I don't actually see it. But then there's the principal question, which gets down to something pretty basic about how you see the world, um, which is, I view offendedness not as a ground to regulate, offensiveness not as a ground to regulate, but as a ground to protect. I think most great and important ideas began as deeply offensive to someone in the movement that I've spent my rights in, which is gay equality, began not only as deeply offensive, but it was ruled obscene, and, and the first gay intellectual magazine was, was actually censored by the U.S. Post Office until the Supreme Court struck that down. Um, so, you know, I'm a bit more on the side of the late, great Frank Kameny, the gay rights activist, who said that the, his view on blasphemy was that we needed more and better blasphemy. I think we learn from this kind of robust public discussion, uh, and I think there's a tremendous social loss including a loss of freedom and, and um, stature for minorities if, if we go around trying to regulate stuff that offends people. All right, gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, Jonathan, uh, do the attacks against Charlie Hebdo and the European response to those attacks uh, vindicate or call into question uh, the European approach to the regulation of hate speech? I think they call into question that approach um, because I think we've seen a rallying in France around Charlie Hebdo and we've seen huge numbers of people queuing up to buy the latest edition of Charlie Hebdo with Mohammed on the cover. I think that that's a much more effective response and that's a response which comes from a, a public support for freedom of, of debate and freedom of expression. I, I think self-censorship and government censorship actually does the bad guy's job for them. Eric Posner, time for your closing argument. What will the legacy be of the response to the Charlie Hebdo attacks? And will the incident vindicate or call into question the European approach to the regulation of hate speech? I think after the uh, French uh, show symbolic support for freedom of speech, the government will uh, strengthen the hate speech laws for the very simple reason that um, it that uh, it does appear that radical Muslim Islamists are going to engage in terrorism in retaliation for uh, speech that you know that, go, that crosses some line, and the government, which wants to maintain order, 
and probably doesn't see any value in, in this speech, any kind of social value, um, is going to try to use the law to make these sorts of provocations um, less common. Now, I do want to add to this that this is not necessarily bad for minorities, as, uh, as Jonathan said. The, the, the relevant minority in France are the Muslims who feel uh, like they're being um, taken advantage of and that their, their views are being disregarded by the establishment. Now, hate speech laws can cut both ways, and, and they're usually used nowadays to protect uh, minorities um, and, not, and not to try to censor them, as was done in the past. Thank you, Eric Posner and Jonathan Rauch, for an illuminating discussion of one of the most important free speech controversies of our time. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.